0: Hello and welcome to episode two of the Physiology of Endurance Running podcast. Uh, I'm your host Dan Nash, PhD researcher in exercise physiology and two fifteen marathon runner. Yeah, so welcome to this second episode. I first, just want to thank everybody who uh, who who listened in and tuned into the, uh, the the inaugural episodes, and actually thank you so much for uh, such kind feedback. Um, it's Proved to be really popular. I've had over 600 downloads, which I'm really, really happy with. Uh, and, yeah, thank you for making uh, me want to record another one. Um, and, uh, yeah, first one, not just flopping uh, completely. So it's proved popular. Uh, and, uh, yeah, we're back for another episode. Uh, so today uh, we're going to talk about, or I'm going to talk about, the second threshold okay and this is this is what people commonly refer to when they're talking about their threshold like at that, that roughly you know pace you could sustain for about an hour but what i'm going to do today is, is to define it specifically what is the second threshold uh, i'm going to talk about actually why is it important for performance what physiologically determines the second threshold and that becomes quite important when it when it, uh, the, the next part of the the, the podcast which will be How should we train it? Um, How should we train to improve our our, our second threshold? Um, And then the second part of this episode, I'm gonna talk about how can we measure the second threshold but actually outside of a lab environment. And here I'm gonna talk about using critical speed um, as a really useful tool that we can employ if we don't have access to lactate testing or lab laboratory testing, but actually we can how can we use critical speed to uh, establish our, our, our second threshold um and use it for uh, training prescription um and how we how we can use it to how we can apply the critical speed model uh to to help optimize our training and then i'll finish up with wrapping up with actually who are the experts in the area specifically looking at critical speed in this case uh, and who should you go follow and actually who should you go and look up if you want to find out more about this topic so hopefully that's uh, interesting for you all again I've, chose, I've chosen this topic because I think it's an area where people are do get confused and it's a really confusing area there's lots of terms that are thrown around which sometimes mean the same thing uh, or referring to the same physiological phenomenon um, but other very similar phrases are referring to something completely different. So hopefully I hope that can help clarify that. Um, but again, using critical speed uh, is something that, uh, that can be accessed by everybody, which is, which is actually, I want this to be a very much applied podcast. I want there to be things that you can, you can actually take away and use from a podcast, much like the nutrition episode that we covered uh, last week. Um, and I thought this would be a good a good topic where actually you can get something useful out of it and not just interesting theoretical knowledge. Yeah, so I hope that sounds interesting. We'll start then. Actually, what is the second threshold? Okay, and what how I'm going to explain this is I'm going to talk through what happens um, to our metabolism and our physiology at three different exercise intensities. So, first we're going to go on a nice easy long run, you know, 60 seconds, 90 seconds a mile, slower than marathon pace, so really comfy. Um, and at this intensity, it's very easy to match the metabolic demands um, of running at that intensity, that pace, uh, through our metabolism. So actually we can break down a mixture of fats and carbohydrates um, within our mitochondria to produce energy, Almost entirely aerobically, um, to uh, uh, to to maintain that intensity, that pace, um, and if we did some lactate measurements, they would be really stable over time. So if we if we took it at fifteen minutes into this this long easy run we're doing, it might be about one one and a half millimole, pretty much the same as if we were sitting on the sofa resting. Um, and if we took it at thirty minutes, it's probably still going to be about one and a half one millimole again at 60 minutes, 65, 75 minutes, 90 minutes, etc., And that would be reflected in things such as uh, your heart rate. So actually your heart rate would, you start your run, heart rate would ramp straight up to, let's say it's 130 beats per minute. Uh, and it's its not gonna drift too much over time. It's gonna, you're gonna very quickly match the, um, the energy expenditure you need through aerobic metabolism and uh, heart rate is going to stay nice and stable, so you know, it might drift a couple of beats but actually if we're staying hydrated, we're taking on fluids and maybe a bit of energy um, during our run, and heart rate should stay very stable over time Um, and other things such as your oxygen consumption which are very, um, which are reflected quite well by your heart rate, they will be nice and stable and even just our perceptual effort is going to be pretty stable over time we're going to be, you know, maybe it's a 3 out of 10 effort By the end of a run, maybe it's a 4 out of 10, but there's not too much drift going on. Uh, Now, we're going to do a marathon pace tempo. Okay, We're going to do an hour at marathon pace, and let's imagine we're a a 2.5 hour marathon runner. Uh, So now we can meet the metabolic demands of running at intensity uh, effectively, um, but now we need to rely a little bit more on uh, burning glycogen as a fuel source, uh, and there's going to be an increased amount of uh, glycolytic or anaerobic energy contributions. Um, and what you'll see is actually that lactate will drift up a, a little bit at the start of the, uh, the run. So let's say we took it at 10 minutes. Well, I, I imagine I, let's let's say we took one before we started, it's about one and a half millimole. We run for 10 minutes, it's about two and a half millimole. But by 20 minutes, it's three millimole. 30 minutes it's only 3.1 and then it's going to stay at about three but three and three to three and a half of the rest of the uh of the one hour tempo um one hour run at marathon pace so things are elevated lactate is elevated above baseline but actually we're in a sort of steady state or a quasi steady state so we actually there may be a small amount of drift but actually we're not things aren't shooting out of control and again that be reflected in our lactate uh, so in our heart rate it's going to it's going to climb a little bit for the first 10 minutes but then it's going to sort of reach a bit of a a plateau the same for oxygen consumption if we were measuring the ph of our bloods again it would be be very similar so we're sort of reaching a steady state a metabolic steady state um, during this one hour so now a completely separate day we're going to do a 10k race Uh, and we're a fast runner we're going to run it in 29 minutes it's going to be a personal best but it's going to be a very unusual 10K, but we're going to take lactate every, uh, every 5 minutes. And here, there's going to be no observable steady state. Lactate is going to be, even after 5 minutes, it's going to be 4 millimoles, and actually in 10 minutes it's going to be 5, 15 minutes it's going to be 6, and what you're going to see is lactate is just going to drift linearly up all the way until we end the race. And the same will be for heart rate, for oxygen consumption, Things are just going to drift, keep drifting up until actually we get to VO2 max um, and exhaustion at the end of a race if we've paced it evenly. Um, So there's definitely no observable steady state in this 10k race. Now, between these three conditions, there are two observable thresholds. Now, between the easy long run, somewhere between that easy long run pace and that marathon pace there's going to be a first threshold. Um, And commonly this is referred to as the lactate threshold, um, because lactate is normally how we establish this threshold. But uh, in terms of a lactate threshold, this is the highest intensity that we can maintain without lactate increasing above baseline levels. Um, But we can can look at ventilatory measures as well. You might have heard of uh, ventilatory threshold one, which is, you can also be used to, to estimate this intensity. Um, but that, that's, that's basically where your first threshold lies. And it's, you know, you can probably sustain this intensity for around three hours. But I think it's just important that actually if we're, we're going to spend most of the episode talking about our second threshold, it's worth us not getting it confused with the first threshold, which is the first increase in lactate above baseline levels. So the second threshold is what is going to divide, is going to fall somewhere between that marathon pace intensity and our 10k race intensity, okay? Um, And the second threshold uh, is the highest intensity where we can maintain a metabolic steady state. So the highest um, speed that we can run at or intensity that we could run at where lactate is going to remain quite stable Again, quite stable. It's a quasi steady state, really, because there is going to be some drift over time, but it's going to be quite a very small drift compared to if we're operating above this second threshold. And again, heart rate is going to be elevated, but pretty stable. There's only a drift by a few beats per minute over the course of uh, a a, a, uh, run at the second threshold. So that's really the, the definition of the second threshold, I'd say is, is based the, the classic definition is the highest intensity that you could maintain, um, that you can run out, sorry, while still maintaining a steady state. And this is what typically people think of as their threshold. Um, but there are lots of different names for the second threshold. Um, I'm trying to, I'm using the second threshold because it's uh, it's sort of an encompassing term, but this is the same as as uh, the maximal lactate steady state or if we take a inter- an um, incremental exercise test people talk about the lactate turn point which is where lactate starts going up from a uh, starts increasing going uh, stops excuse me where lactate goes from increasing very slowly to a sudden increase in lactate um, with just a small increase in exercise intensity so the lactate turn point is another estimate this maximal lactate of this maximal mexabolic steady state. Um, Now another uh, another tool we can use is the critical speed if we're running of critical power concept if we're cycling and we're measuring power output Um, but that's another uh, another way that we can uh, try to establish this maximal uh, intensity where a metabolic steady state can be maintained. but they're all, as I said, there's there's lots of different way, terms, and that's because there's lots of different ways of measuring it. As I said, like we could look at oxygen consumption, we could look at lactate, we could look at performance data, we could look at pH, and that's why there are so many different uh, and often confusing phrases that are all trying to uh, establish the same sort of phenomenon of the metabolic steady state. Um, and we'll talk a bit more about critical speed later, but actually, throughout this episode, I'm going to try and refer to it as The second threshold so why is the second threshold important Um, so in the context of the marathon especially if you're a faster marathon runner I hope it's quite apparent that actually uh, the second threshold sets the ceiling of what is what is sustainable okay because actually if you start operating above the second threshold then your things are quite going to quickly deteriorate. So oxygen consumption is going to keep going up. Lactate is going to keep going up. And actually we can only do a finite amount amount of work above the second threshold. And actually that finite amount of work can be thought of as a battery. So we can either deplete it really quickly in the case of a 500 meter race, for example, or we can eke it out more slowly over the course of a 10k race. But actually the amount of work you can do above the second threshold is quite fixed Um, but it's limited okay so actually we can't sustain it for very long which is why actually when we're doing uh, racing a marathon we can't go faster than our second threshold unless we want to blow up quite early on and fade quite quickly um, because it's just not sustainable for a long period of time and if we look at elite marathon runners, so the guys who are running like low two hours, they're sustaining about 95, 96% of their critical speeds or their second threshold. Um, so they're operating really close to it, but just below. Now, part of the fact is uh, that is because they're, they're only running for two hours compared to say the three hour marathon runner. But at the same time, they're also exceptionally well conditioned to be able to A, have a really high second threshold and B, B, uh, be able to operate very close to it um, for a long period of time uh, in, in the marathon for example so it really is going to set the, the, the performance limit if you like for, for distances and competitions that are happening slower than the second threshold uh but about shorter events you know like the 500 meters of a 5k the 10k because these are happening at a speed but take the speed that is above the second threshold so for these shorter events actually the second threshold still seems to correlate really well with performance uh, and that's because going back to this concept of a battery of work that you can do above the second threshold being limited if we can improve our second threshold then that's going to decrease our reliance on using that battery so we need we need we, we need to use less uh, glycolysis anaerobic energy contributions um, coming from that battery. And it also means that we've got more space for our VO2 to drift up to meet our max, if that makes sense. So actually, exhaustion tends to happen when we get to VO2 max. Uh, And if we can delay that by having a bigger buffer between our our critical speeds and our VO2 max, then that's gonna improve our performance. Sorry, just to, on, that, on that last point there, just to clarify, I think actually a smaller gap between your critical speeds or your second threshold and your, your VO2 max tends to be associated with people who are fitter because actually more of their energy that is available to them is available from sustainable sources. Because actually if we can sustain the second threshold for a very long period of time, well, about an hour, give or take, you know, um, then actually, if we can if we can transfer that into 500 meter running, five k running, then more of the, the energy that we're using to run at that pace is coming from sustainable sources, um, which is going to mean that there's less a buildup of lactate. It's going to um, uh, less of a um, uh, drift in oxygen consumption, uh, or in other words, or we can run at faster speeds for the same drift. If that makes sense. Uh, and what you'll see is actually for both middle distance runners and marathon runners are these days going to have a very high second threshold. Um, and in, that's, because, that's because it's very important for performance. Um, like, you know, there are plenty of examples of people like uh, the Inga Britsons out there who are doing very high volumes of training um, and lots of stuff at their threshold. But actually that's pretty common I think uh, in, in, in any any athlete now and actually that you need to have if you're specializing in middle distance events, you need to have a very high aerobic capacity, a very high second threshold, as well as a big anaerobic capacity to go with it. Okay, so hopefully I've convinced you that it's important for performance. I'm going to put some, uh, some, some uh, material in the show notes to, that you might want to read up on if you're yeah, particularly interested in, in any of these in the topics or want to find out about a bit more. But now uh, I'm going to move on to actually what determines the second threshold. So physiologically, what's happening that means that, uh, actually once we exceed this this intensity, we can no longer maintain a steady state. Um, and actually, we don't really a hundred percent know. right that's the honest answer. Like there's lots of stuff out there to say to describe um the phenomenon, um, and that actually it definitely seems to exist. But there is a a, a, a window of an intensity where actually if we exceed that, um, that 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 zone then we can no longer maintain a steady state but we don't 100% know why um, but there are a couple of things we do know. Um, the first one is that the percentage of slow twitch muscle fibres we have so slow twitch fibres being the ones that we recruit um, first exercise, then better aerobic metabolism, and they're very fatigue resistant, um, but can't produce massive amounts of force. Um, these slow-twitch type 1 muscle fibres, the percentage we have, correlates really quite nicely with an individual's uh, second threshold or their critical speeds. in this case. okay. Um, and that highlights, I think, firstly, that the machinery of the muscle fibres is, 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 is really important. And actually having a, a, a muscle fibre that's got a very high aerobic capacity seems to be important for having uh, a high critical speed. Um, now, the second thing that also correlates really well is the uh, what level of capillarization these slow-twitch muscles um, fibres have. So... Within a muscle we have, a muscle is made up of lots of individual muscle fibres. And each one of these muscle fibres is surrounded by and in contact with uh, capillaries. So capillaries are the very small blood vessels uh, which easily allow the transfer of of nutrients, of gases um, to and from tissues. So in the example of a muscle fibre um, the very small, uh, these yeah, these capillaries, these very small blood vessels, are, are are rammed up against these muscle fibers, and they're gonna allow oxygen, uh, for example, and glucose, to transport from the blood, into the muscle fiber, but also allow things like lactate and carbon dioxide to diffuse out of the muscle fiber and back into the blood. So it's where we can see a transfer of nutrients. Uh, of of nutrients, of gases, of waste products into and out of the muscle. And actually if a muscle fibre if the the amount of contacts that a capillary has with a muscle fibre, so allowing a, a greater flux of nutrients, gases, whatever this correlates really again nicely with someone's critical speed so there seems to be two factors involved here, it's actually the the, the, ma- the machinery of a muscle fibre so how big its aerobic capacity is, its mitochondrial content um, and, 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 and uh, its ability to um, produce uh, energy from aerobic metabolism at very fast rates combined with really good uh, connectivity, um, a really efficient system for transferring um, nutrients, blood gases, waste products into and out of the muscle. It's a really good delivery system. Now there's probably lots of other things going on as well but I think they're the two things that we know for definite. I expect things such as lactate transporters, uh, enzymes just as pyruvate dehydrogenase uh, are also really important uh, parts of the equation but actually that's more speculative. I want to ground this podcast in what we actually do know, um, and I think actually the main takeaway messages seem to be that yeah, a really uh, aer- uh, aerobically conditioned muscle fiber partnered with a really good uh, transport system, exchange system in terms of good capillarization seems to be uh, a big determinant of how uh, what uh, of 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 how. Uh, high our second threshold is So I think those two bits of knowledge um, Tell us maybe a little bit about how we should train to improve our second threshold But again, I would say that This isn't an area that is is conclusive by any means and there's certainly there's certainly no established uh, training intensity, one particular intensity that is going to improve our second threshold and that's all we need to do. I think it's it's probably going to be a bit of a mix Um, understandably because actually if we know that the second threshold is so important for performance we we don't see elite athletes going out there and just training at one intensity all the time, it's going to be a bit of a mix of different intensities um, and different durations of training which are probably going to uh, come together to to optimize the training adaptations that lead to an improvement in second threshold. But I still think there are some things that we can we can take away um, from the scientific knowledge and that are important for bearing in mind how we should maybe develop uh, the, the capacities we need to improve our second threshold. Um, and the first I think key message is that the second threshold is very much an aerobic phenomenon. Okay. it's to do with actually the rates of which we can produce energy aerobically and re- without relying too much on that anaerobic glycolytic contributions that we that, that are uh, that come with fast switch fibers uh, recruitment so that means that one of our goals should definitely be to develop our slow switch fibers and improve their capacities to uh, burn fuel aerobically uh, So that basically means lots of mitochondria, which are also very efficient with high enzyme content, are very uh, good, uh, and they have a very fast rate of of producing energy aerobically. Now, we also want to probably increase the aerobic capacities of our fast-twitch muscle fibres. So actually, if we can make our fast-twitch fibres more like slow-twitch muscle fibres, then that is going to probably translate into an improved second threshold. So that's sort of targeting the capacity of our muscles to, to generate uh, energy aerobically. Now, the second part of the equation, the the, um, the capillarization of our muscle fibres. Now, that's something where we do have a bit more evidence to suggest that actually um, to Im- to increase our rates of angiogenesis, which is to say creating new... Uh, muscle, um, so new uh, blood vessels and, and more capillarization of the muscles, then that seems to be more, uh, arise more from moderate intensity, long duration training rather than uh, super high intensity training and interval training, etc. So actually most of the, um, a lot of the benefits we're getting from that long duration volume training is probably through uh, the capillarization of our muscle fibers, and again you know if we look at the, what the elites do, actually at the elite level, in some capacity, everybody is doing a high volume of training, whether that be purely running or for a mixture of cross training, everybody at the elite level is doing a high volume of training, um, which again suggests that uh, this is probably a mechanism through which we are seeing. Uh, increased capillarization of the muscles which is going to allow for an increased flux of uh, gases, nutrients to go in and out of the muscles really quickly and efficiently uh, and so improve our second threshold. Now how do we actually improve the, um, the capacities of our muscle fibres um, as I mentioned earlier now that's yet less clear but it's probably going to be some mix of duration and intensity. Um, intensity definitely is important for developing the the um for mitochondrial biogenesis, so in create creating more mitochondria, which are the powerhouses of the cells, and for making them more efficient. But actually, we don't we can't say that it's specifically uh, work above the threshold or work below the thresholds. Um and you know, I think you, you could go back to the rule of specificity, and but you know, threshold training is going to improve your threshold. Now I think there's many good arguments for that but i don't think we can conclusively say that um that that is the the most effective or at least the only way that we can get mitochondrial gains um, and actually there are um, papers out there that show mitochondrial biogenesis with doing this the sort of super intense um hit protocols with with like th- or, or even sprint interval training with 30 seconds flat out running with four or five minutes recovery in between. Um, so I think intensity is definitely part of the equation there. Um, but I think there's still a place for some threshold running as well. Now I think what begs the question here is actually if that if, that, if we don't really know if threshold training is good for improving our thresholds, then actually why why do we even need to do we need to do threshold training at all? Or actually why do we even need to know our thresholds? Um, and I think they're both very valid questions, but I think for me, uh, if we know our threshold where it is roughly, then it really helps in training prescription, I and mean, actually we can be have an idea of actually what we're prescribing to either the athletes we coach or ourselves, and actually saying actually if we're doing, we're applying this stimulus, then actually we can then see what responses are, and if we're just being a bit random with our training prescription and we're not really having any idea of what intensity we're working at are we working above threshold are we working below threshold then actually we don't know what stimulus we gave um, to reach the adaptations and race performances that we've resulted with but actually if we're a bit more precise and we track um, what training we do in what uh, if it's a, if it's below threshold, if it's above threshold, and we look at the results from that, then that means that actually, in our next training block, we can see what perhaps worked well last time. Maybe we need to add in a bit more threshold work and see what that does to our race performances, or maybe we actually want to add a bit more stuff above threshold, more closer to VO two max intensities, and see how that affects our our adaptations and our race performances. Um, otherwise, I feel like it's a bit of hit and miss uh, and we know we can't really evolve our training and refine our training over time so i think that's justification in itself as to why we should actually uh, have a why, why we should get some marker of our of, of where our second threshold is um, and also why we should we should really be good at logging our training and tracking our training and and observing how we respond to the, the stress that we've given our body in terms of the training that we've done uh, and I think actually there could be a whole podcast, which maybe will be a future episode on actually is threshold training an effective way to train or not. I, I'll i give you my, my, my bias at the moment. I think it is an effective way to train, but I don't think it's the only way to train and I don't think everyone should just be doing threshold training. Um, uh, and by threshold training, I mean training that is below the second threshold in that sort of, in that heavy intensity domain. Uh, but I think yeah, we could be. I think there could be a whole podcast. Uh, on j- just looking at how Inge Britson's trained, for example, and then saying actually why that might be an effective strategy. But before we go down that rabbit hole, uh, I'm gonna bring us to actually how can we measure the second threshold? Now I've sort of alluded to this already. Um, like traditionally it would be done in a lab, um, and actually the, the probably the. What was always the gold standard would be to come into the lab with some estimate of where you think that second threshold is, and then on consecutive days or not consecutive days, but on 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 on, sub, on, on subsequent visits to the lab, you would come in, and you'd do a thirty minute uh, run or ride if you were if you go on the bike at a fixed intensity, which you're estimating as probably slightly below your threshold your second threshold and you would measure lactate and what you would be looking for is a nice stable response and the classical or the, the textbook definition is actually that the lactate um at 10 minutes should should uh, the lactate at 30 minutes sorry should only be one millimole or less than one millimole higher than the lactate at 10 minutes so for example lactate might be at two and a half millimole at 10 minutes um, and at 30 minutes, it's three millimole, okay? So it's gone up by less than one millimole, and so that we can say that you are probably below your maximal lactate steady state or your, your second threshold. Now, what you do then is come in on a subsequent day and run or ride at slightly higher intensity and see if you are still, uh, if that relationship still held true. So maybe this time you come in and it starts at three millimole, you are at 10 minutes and at 30 minutes, is three and a half millimol. okay great right that seems to be uh, uh, also below your second threshold Um. right we meet that means but uh we, we're confident that, that intensity is below your second threshold um and we're gonna have to invite you back again to see if if, if going up a bit more still produces a stable result so this time you're riding your uh, higher power output you're running at slightly faster speeds but this time you see that your four millimole at 10 minutes and your five millimole five and a half millimole at 30 minutes so okay that's probably above your maximal lactate steady state or your maximal metabolic steady state Um, now as you can imagine that is quite laborious it involves lots of visits to the lab so in practical terms it probably only really happens in a research capacity you don't get elite athletes doing that what you tend to happen is they come to the lab they'll do a series of um, they'll do an incremental exercise tests where they might do three between three and five minute stages typically, where each st- each stage will increase by one kilometer an hour, and you try to identify the the, um, the point where lactate goes from increasing just slowly. So for example, s- subsequent stages might look like two and a half millimol, three and a half millimol, four and a half millimol, and then the next one is six millimol. So there's that a big jump after that. Uh, and that, that point there where lactate goes from rising slowly to rising quickly is, is labelled the lactate turn point and that is an approximation of your maximal lactate steady state, your second threshold. So that's often what happens uh, in a laboratory setting, there are other ways of doing it, but I'd say that's, that's how I often do it and it's a typical way of getting um, a good amount of data uh, in an effective and efficient period of time but actually there are ways we can do a similar thing outside of the lab okay and that brings us to the concept of critical speed um, now you may have heard of critical speeds you may have heard of critical power which is actually used in cycling but it's the same concept and actually it's been very highly adopted in cycling as the best way of determining the second threshold um, but basically the concept relies on the fact that we can hold uh, a very fast speed for only a short period of time so the 800 meters for example we're racing 800 meters maybe we can sustain 22 kilometers an hour okay but we can only do that for two minutes Ballpark figures uh, but if we uh, but as we increase the speed, uh, increase the duration of the of the um, the competition we're competing at the speeds uh the speed drops off quite quickly at first. Okay, so the difference between 800 meter speed and 1,500 meter speed is quite a lot, uh, but then it starts to level off. So actually the difference between racing at 1,500 meters and 3K, the speed obviously is slower, but it's not a massive drop in speed. And the speed difference between a a, a 5K and 10K is actually quite a small difference. And so we see this sort of exponential fall in uh, in our the speed we can sustain, Um. Over, a di- over the different distances. And this goes back to the concept of this, of this battery, which we can either use very quickly, in the case of an meter, 800 meters, or we can eke it out more slowly over the case of a 5k or a 10k. Um, and the rate that we use that battery is actually not too much different between a 5k and a 10k, whereas actually at 800 meters, it's very, very quick, really, we're depleting this battery. And this point where the, the, the um, where this curve starts to level off, is what is referred to as critical speeds, Because actually, we're now getting down to intensities that are sustainable for quite a long period of time. And this coincides really well um, with the second threshold. And that's because the fatigue mechanisms um, that are happening below the second threshold are much slower to, to manifest, okay? It's much more sustainable speed. So it would make sense that actually the as we get closer to, as, as competition distances and performances get closer to our, our critical speeds or our, our second threshold, then, then they're going to start uh, dropping off at a reduced rate. And so that actually as we get closer to um, critical speeds, we're going to fatigue much less quickly. So critical speed is actually a concept that is quite hard to explain, at least for me over uh, an audio file uh, and actually it's much easier to to see a picture of it when it becomes quite self-explanatory. But what I've done is I've created a calculator uh, in Excel which I'm going to share in the show notes with you. Um, And what this will do is that you can plug in uh, some race performances uh, which will then be used to calculate your critical speed. Uh, and it will also give you your W' prime, which is in the critical speed model the equivalent of the battery that we've, I've been keep talking about um, throughout this podcast and uh, the battery being the amount of work that you can do above W'. prime. So, if you want to, go and have a mess around with that calculator. There are a few rules out there, I've, I've, within the calculator I've put instructions of how to use it, but basically what we need is is We need at least two performances, either races or time trials. You want them to be recent, so they actually reflect uh, your current physiology. Uh, you don't, There's no point taking PBs from five years ago, because that's not going to reflect your current physiological state. Um, and it's also important that these performances are in the two-minute to about 30-minute window, okay? Because what these performances need to do is they need to completely... It needs to be above your second threshold or confidently above your second threshold and you need to completely deplete your W prime or your battery um, or a work that you can do above your threshold during these performances. And that's very important, otherwise it's going to uh, miscalculate where your critical speed is. Um, and you also don't want it to be too short. So for example, if you've run 800 meters in one minute 50, one minute 40, if you're super, super good, then uh, that's probably not gonna be long enough to necessarily get all the way up to VO2 max and deplete your battery within that window. So I've put the event distances you can put in uh, from 1,000 meters up to 10K. I'd only use the 10K one if you can run the 10K in under 30 minutes. Realistically, for most people, to get a, you're gonna get a better estimate of your critical speed if you're using um, the 5K down to the 1K, uh um distances. Now some practical um recommendations and, and and how do we apply the critical speed model? I mean, as I said in the introduction, one of the reasons why I've 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 decided to focus on critical speeds, uh, and the second threshold within this this podcast is a it seems to be important for performance, but b critical speed allows anybody to go and. Uh, calculate their second threshold in a very accurate re- way um, especially if you've, if you've been very controlled in um, your your performance data that you're using that you're putting into the model so for example um, in in a lab setting it's been shown to be very reliable but you also need to make sure that the quality of the data that you're giving the model is, is, is really good and so for example if you're using a 5k time from Uh, a hilly course which had a bit of off-road in it um, and you're using a 3k time that you've got from a track race then those two performances aren't really equivocal so you want to have uh, performance data whether that be a time trial or a race um, which are from similar settings so uh, either both from a road or both from a track probably with a good you know similar environmental conditions Um, And obviously, you want to be well rested going into both of those performances and be sufficiently motivated to to really get a full effort out of yourself. And I'd also recommend that actually, if you can, if you've got three recent performances compared to only having two, then that is going to increase the confidence that you can have in the the critical speed uh, that is generated from 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 the calculator. Um, because that's going to, if there's a little bit of variability, if one of them, maybe one of those performances you weren't quite as motivated for, you don't think actually maybe you were as fresh and tapered for, then actually it's not going to have as big a influence on on the result because it's going to be diluted out because you've got three performance conditions instead of just the two. So the more high quality data you can feed it, the better the the model is going to be, the, the more accurate, and more confidence you can have in the critical speed that it generates. Now, in practical terms, say you've got a, a critical speed that you're, you've, got, you've put good data into a model, you're very confident that the critical speed represents your physiology. You can, you've, maybe you've been to the lab and it seems to match up reasonably well with what uh, your lactate turn point was, for example. Now, when you're doing a threshold session, you want to probably be below your critical speed um, because actually if you are only slightly above your critical speed then you're going to start depleting that battery and you're going to start fatiguing at a much quicker rate than if you are below it and you probably want to be a bit below it okay so maybe like 10 seconds a mile because actually as soon as you start exceeding your, your critical speed then you're going to start depleting that battery and you're going to fatigue much more quickly and actually, there's going to be some drift over the course of an interval session as it is. OK, so if we're doing, let's say we're doing six by a mile, actually by the end uh, of the session, you're going to start fatiguing anyway. You're, you might become slightly less economical. And so actually, if you maintain the same speed, you're going to actually your heart rate is going to be higher, even for the same speed. And you're going to start drifting into uh, or above your your second threshold intensity okay even if the actual pace is the same so i would give yourself a bit of a buffer like there's no there's we've we've already said already that training at the second threshold exactly at it is not important um and i would be more con- concerned with getting a a consistent response um in your training and it'd also be worth observing actually when you're doing sessions that are below your critical speed Actually, are you seeing a pretty stable heart rate? Is RPE staying pretty stable? Um, and if it is, then that's fantastic. That's that's a confirmation that yes, you are in your at your threshold pace or below your second threshold in that uh, in that space that's so between your lactate threshold and your second threshold, your first threshold and your second threshold, um, and that actually you're correctly executing the session. But on the other hand if you are seeing that actually your are finding is very very difficult heart rate is drifting up all the time from from one re- interval to the next or over the course of a long uh, of a, a a continuous tempo run but actually heart rate is going up by 20 beats over the course of the of the 30 minute tempo run then that's probably a sign that you've, overestim- you've overestimated your critical speed and maybe you need to dial it back a bit and i think Although there are many plus sides to critical speed, one of the disadvantages are that it doesn't account for in real-time uh, the environment or fatigue, for example. So for example, if we've got heart rate data derived from a, a test in the lab, then if we stick to the heart rate, that is going to um, uh, take into account if it's very hot. So if it's very hot, your heart rate is going to be higher so that you have to run at a slower intensity but if you keep to the heart rate zones then you're probably still going to be within uh the intended intensity domain that you you set out to be in whereas if you've got a critical speed that's that's been established from uh some races but been in ideal weather conditions and you were fresh and uh, everything was perfect on race day you felt amazing but now you've got to a, 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 a club night and you're a bit tired, it's blowing a gale, it's 30 degrees, then actually those speeds derived from a critical speed test are not going to reflect uh, the, um, your current critical speed in most current conditions. Uh, and, and in that way, actually, you need to be able to use uh, either just your subjective um, RPE, your rate of perceived exertion, or use some other marker such as heart rate, or, or if you've got it, measuring lactate directly um, to ensure that you're running at the, the correct intensity. But I think for those people who d- don't have access to lactate, uh, it's a really useful tool. Um, and actually it's going to give you a much better idea of where your second threshold lies uh, rather than using your one-hour pace or your half-marathon pace, for example. Okay. Um, and it's something that you can track over time uh, and it's really it's, it's, it's going to be good enough for the vast majority of people for determining where your second threshold is so that is critical speed the critical speed model um, I'm just going to summarise what we've talked about in this podcast so what is the second threshold the second threshold um, it's got many names Including the lactate turn point, the maximal lactate steady state, critical speed. But all all of them, all of these uh, markers, the different measures are trying to estimate uh, the highest intensity that you can maintain uh, whilst still having a metabolic steady state. And so, that actually, if you're exercising below this intensity, then heart rate, lactate, RPE are going to stay elevated but fairly stable over time. Whereas if you exceed this threshold, then all of these things, uh, lactate, oxygen consumption, heart rate, are just going to drift up until you uh, until they reach maximum. So you get to get to VO2 max, until you get to heart rate max, until your RPE is 10 out of 10. Uh, the second threshold seems to be really important for performance. For uh, events such as a marathon that happen below uh, the second threshold, um, the second threshold acts as a ceiling of what is sustainable and so that actually uh, you need to be able to be below uh, that second threshold if you want to maintain an exercise intensity for a long period of time. Uh, But the second threshold also seems to be important when you're competing in events uh, faster than the second threshold such as the 1500 meters for 5k, 10k and that's because if you've got a higher second threshold, a higher critical speed, a higher metabol- uh, maximal lactate steady state then more of your, your energy you're guessing is coming from sustainable uh, sources and that's going to decrease your reliance upon glycolysis, anaerobic metabolism uh, and mean that that battery, that W' prime is available either to allow you to run faster over the course of the whole race or to allow you to have a big finishing kick at the end. Uh, the determinants of the second threshold aren't exactly, uh, I don't think there's a consensus, uh, certainly not a consensus on, on um, what is going on within the body that is determining our second threshold. But two things that seem to be really important are the amount of slow-twitch fibers we have, um, which uh, slow-twitch fibers have a very big aerobic capacity to do work, so actually what, is, what are the muscle fibers aerobic capacity to work? how much slow switch fibers do we have? and the second important point is, how, uh, is the rate is the degree of capillarization so how, uh, how well are these uh, slow switch fibers perfused with blood and able to uh, extract oxygen and glucose and get rid of CO2 and lactate. Uh, how should we train? To improve our second threshold, uh well, we're looking to improve the aerobic capacity of our muscle fibers, both our slow switch and probably our fast switch too, and we want to increase the uh, the rate of angiogenesis we've had to increase the capillarization of our muscle fibers. The latter of this is probably going to come from doing a high volume of low intensity training, um, but we're probably going to need a mix of both high-volume, low-intensity training and high-intensity training. I expect both above and below the second threshold to help improve the aerobic capacities of our muscle fibres. There are lots of different ways we can measure the second threshold. Um, In the lab and the uh, setting, it tends to be using lactate. But a really good way of using of measuring it in the field is using the critical speed concept, and the critical speed model, which you can get from just looking at time trial and race performances in the 2 to 30 minute window. And I've linked the calculators down in the show notes. Uh, there are flaws to critical speed. Um, in that it does not respond to it doesn't account for environmental changes or your fatigue status um, compared to using heart rate but it's still a good enough tool for most people. And I think that's about wrapped up the conclude the summary of the show. Now I really hope that I haven't made this potentially very confusing topic even more confusing and I haven't just butchered critical speeds and critical power because it does get uh, as I said it gets very confusing very quickly and some of these things are much easier to see visually rather than describe over a podcast. Um the only thing left for me to do is recommend some people for you to follow. And I've got two really good recommendations today. The first is Dr. Mark Burnley. So he can be found on Twitter, but he's also got some fantastic episodes on YouTube. Uh, and his, his channel is called All Out Physiology. Uh, but I will link to that in the show notes. And the second person I would recommend you go and follow is Dr. Phil Skyber or Skeba not quite sure you pronounce his name but again he's been on lots of podcasters as Mark Burnley but he uh, is a uh, I'd say he's an expert in critical speed and critical power modeling and he's got a book um, that specifically focuses on that really called scientific training for endurance athletes so both of those two are well worth looking up and probably do a much better job than me of explaining um, some of these concepts. Um, I hope you found it interesting uh again feedback and uh, it is it will be really uh, useful for me and if you've got any podcast ideas for subsequent episodes please uh do send them my way you can follow me on twitter um uh you can subscribe now to the podcast on uh spotify and on apple podcasts and google podcasts so go check them out there if you if that's uh, where or wherever you want to listen to this podcast it's available in most major streaming services uh now so yeah i hope everyone has a good week of training and hopefully catch you again soon